0: So, thank you. Lord, I want to take the time this morning to to explain your word to the people here, Lord, to your family, to my family in Christ, Lord. I ask that you make my words your words, and uh, that uh, you make your words my words, so that whatever it is that I say here this morning is what you want the folks to hear, Lord. And not only that, Lord, but I ask that you put these words in their heart and that they make them into action as they go out into the world where they live, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about two terrible stories of destruction, and we did that uh, for a variety of reasons, and I want to remind you of those reasons. First, we did that so that we could illustrate for you the power of the Word of God, the power of the actual, real-time Word of God that proceeds from His mouth. It's that real, actionable Word of God where He says, let there be light, and there's light. We wanted to do that for you so that you would know that when God says that one nation will rise up, you can be rest assured that that nation will rise up. If God says that another nation will will fall and will be cut off, then you can rest assured that that nation will fall and be cut off. When God says that your sins are forgiven and thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, you can rest assured that your sins are forgiven and they're in the sea of forgetfulness, that his word is powerful. In fact, it's so powerful that it is the mechanism of his will. It is the execution of his will. The actual word that comes out of his mouth is just completely congruent with his will so that whatever he says, his will is done. It's that perfect and that true. The second reason that we wanted to talk about um, terrible uh, uh, stories of destruction was to illustrate for you that the Bible... Um, has captured those real-time actionable words for God and have encoded them into the ink and the paper of the little books that you carry around and call the Bible that it is reliable enough to capture those words so that when you read the Bible, you know that what it says about the past is true. You may not understand it, but you can know that it's true. And you can know that what it has said about the future will be true, and you can know that what it says about you is also true. So that when it says that when you have submitted your will to the will of God, that you have become a child of God, you have changed, from a creature of God into an actual child of God. That's when you become a child of God. It's when you submit your will to the will of Jesus. Anytime prior to the submission of that will, you're just a creature of God. You're just something that He made. But once you submit your will to His will, you become a child of His. You can rest assured that the Bible says that you are a divine member of His family. So I wanted you to understand that. The third reason that we wanted to tell you about terrible uh, stories of destruction was so that, um, so that you could understand fully and be prepared for the times that are coming to humanity, and perhaps even to the times that we are living in, that we're certainly at the doorstep of. Because the Bible has a lot of predictive prophecy in it. It says a lot of things about what is going to happen in the future. And those things will happen. And I want you to be prepared for those because all of the things that the Bible has said about the end of time, the stage for those things have been being set for the past 2,000 years. But in the past 70 years or so, those things have been becoming really, really set so that you are now seeing actors on the stage. You're now seeing props on the stage. Everything is getting ready for the play of the final times. And I wanted you to be prepared for that because that's the purpose of prophecy so that you know what's coming so that you can live your life accordingly based on those prophecies. So last week we talked about two specific um, stories of destruction. Just to remind you, one of them was about the ancient destruction of the city of Tyre. Um, Tyre was an ancient city on the Mediterranean coast, and Ezekiel prophesies about the end of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And the reason that I chose that particular city and that particular prophecy is because that prophecy, at least as far as I can tell, has more extra-biblical confirmation for it than any other prophecy in the Bible. So when you go out and you look at the historical documents and the historical representations of what happened to the city of Tyre and you compare it to the prophecy of Ezekiel you can go oh my goodness Ezekiel was dead nail on with that and so that way you could understand again that the power of the word of God is true that the Bible is reliable enough to capture that word of God and that it might have some significance for you in the future the second story of destruction that we covered last week was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem which occurred in 70 A.D. And I'm going to go over that again with you a little bit, a little briefly this morning just to to make it mesh with the rest of the sermon. Uh, And so I'll start by telling you, I'll give you a synopsis of Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is in the temple and he is chastising the religious leaders of the day. He's chastising the Pharisees and the priests and all of those people that hold authoritative power in the temple and within the faith community of ancient Israel. And he calls them hypocrites at least five times. And in one instance, he even gets to a place where he calls them a brood of vipers. And the the, um, the significance of that is that, that that is almost, if it's not pro- profanity, it is almost profanity. It is very, very strong language to call those religious leaders a brood of vipers. Now, let me go back to Tyre just for a second. God says when Tyre gets destroyed, that ancient city of Tyre that's... who's Destruction is prophesied by Ezekiel. He says, the destruction will be so complete that you will be left desolate. Now, the word desolate, it's a word that means, it's, it's the same kind of word that is used if a husband, in ancient times anyway, would leave a wife, right? If a husband left a wife in the ancient times, what kind of place is the wife in? She's in a desolate place. It's a miserable place of emptiness because she doesn't have provision she doesn't have protection. She doesn't have meaning. That's what the word desolate means—a miserable place of miserable emptiness. And so God says, "I'm going to leave you desolate." Of course, it's destroyed and it's desolate. After Jesus gives his little speech to the to the um, uh, to the Pharisees in the temple um, in Matthew 23, um, he he says something very simple, uh, very similar in Matthew 23. Verses 37 through 39, and going on into Matthew 24, verses 3 through the first couple, Jesus says this He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? I've tried to gather you together. I've tried to bring you back into one camp. By the way, that has prophetic significance as well. I'll explain it in a second. But I would like to bring you back under my, under my wing, but you were not willing. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm walking out of this house. Jesus says and he continues that you'll see in Matthew 24 verse 1 Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the point came out came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus says your house is going to be left to you desolate. I'm going to leave it desolate. In fact, he doesn't even call it God's house. He calls it your house. It's your house. I'm leaving your house. I'm walking out of the house and when I walk out of the house you have, you have lost your husband. You've lost the spirit of this place. Now, there's a wonderful bit of a lesson in that. Let me tell you what it is. It's interesting that he calls it your house because, frankly, the temple of God, that brick and mortar, mortar building that, that the Hebrews built and that the Israelis built, the Israelites built, was never the house of God to begin with because Paul tells us In Acts, chapter 7, 48, write it down, that God does not live in houses built by men. If you go back to the story of David, I'll give you the synopsis here, but if you go back and you look at the story of David, David, the uh, first, um, he's not the first king of Israel, but he's probably the first good king of Israel. And David wanted to build a temple. I want to build a temple for you, God, he says. And God says to David, nope, you're not, going to build, you're not going to build a temple. He says, that temple's going to be built by your son. You've committed murder, David, and you've spilled blood, so you're not going to build the temple that's going to have my name on it. Instead, it's going to be built by your son. Now, everybody thinks, well, that son was Solomon because Solomon does come along and Solomon builds the temple. But but God had said to David, you're not going to build the temple. In fact, your son's going to build it, and when he builds it, it will never be destroyed. Well, Solomon comes along, he builds the temple, and guess what? The temple's destroyed. What God meant by that was, my son, who's going to come out of your line, David, Jesus, who is in your lineage, David, he's going to build the temple, and nobody's ever going to destroy that temple, because that temple's going to be in the hearts of men. Okay, Do you follow me there? So Jesus, in that temple there in Matthew 23, says, I'm leaving out of here. Whatever spirit of God was in here, I'm leaving out of here, and, and I'm not coming back until you are able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you're able to do that, then I'll be back. So there's another image in this particular bit of scripture where Jesus says, I tried to, I tried to bring you under my wing. Tried to gather you back under my wing, but you wouldn't have it. You weren't willing to do that. Well, there's this idea called the diaspora. Have you guys ever heard, have you guys ever heard of the diaspora? That's a kind of a big word. Anybody know what that is? Okay. The diaspora, what somebody say what? So, the scattering, right? The scattering about. Well, Israel was scattered throughout the world when. Babylon, Babylon came and captured the Jewish people and took them back to Babylon and then scattered them out. They were scattered out. It was never the same after that. They came back a few times, but they never fully came back. They were scattered throughout the world. And Jesus says to them, I've tried to bring you under my wing, but you wouldn't have it. I want you to remember that idea of diaspora and the gathering back. So in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. And lo and behold, that is exactly what happens to the temple. About Forty years later, in A.D. 70, the Romans came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they build these big, giant fireworks all around the temple, they load it with wood and flammable things, and they they set it on fire, and the temple becomes so hot from those fires that the bricks actually crumble, and then the Romans take those crumbled, dusty bricks, everything, and they throw it into the Kidron Valley. So Jesus' prophecy, in A.D. 70, about the destruction of that temple, comes perfectly true. Because in that temple was not the Spirit of God. In that temple was the Spirit of something that was not God. So, as he sat on the beginning in verse 3, "...as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "'Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age?' will come now when we read that and we read about the end coming there is often in the hearts and minds of people a fear of gloom and grim and darkness and terrible things and that's definitely part of the end of the age but you should not view the end of the age as something that is terrible In fact, the end of the age is something that is very, very good. Because it is not the end of the age of goodness, it's the end of the age of evil that Satan and men have brought to the world that God created. That's what it's the end of. And in order for that end to occur, you're going to have to have wars and rumors of wars, you're going to have to have destruction and terrible things that occur. Yesterday, when we went to Randy's house to replace the porch, the first thing that we had to do to put up the stairs was to knock down all the other stairs, because they weren't working, and they were dangerous, and they were a bad set of stairs. Around those stairs, thank God I haven't gotten poison ivy yet, because usually all I have to do is look at it, and I've got it, but we had to rip up poison ivy from all around those stairs we had to destroy all of it in order to put something good back in its place so the end of the age is not a terrible thing but a good thing so let's read this particular passage again and let's go through it a little bit more verse by verse as he sat on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age and jesus answered them See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is an important verse, and the reason that it's important is this, and we're going to talk about Antichrist in a minute, um, a little more fully, but let me prepare your mind, I'll, I'll remind you again in a minute, but Antichrist is exactly that, he's an Antichrist, he is the exact opposite of Christ, okay? And he is a counterfeit Christ. And in order to be a counterfeit Christ, you have to look kind of like the real Christ. So this counterfeit counterfeit Christ will have, he'll have a three-pronged kind of thing. Like with God, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, okay? Well, you're going to have the same thing with the Antichrist. You're going to have an Antichrist, you're going to have a false prophet, and you're going to have a beast, okay? It's a three-in-one kind of thing. So Christ is telling the disciples so that they will be aware and prepared. They're going to be people who are going to be coming in my name. They're going to be saying that they're me, or they're going to be saying that they represent me. Do not fall for that mess. That's what he's saying. Be prepared for that. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains." Birth pains, as we talked about last week, is a cycle of pains from the contractions that a woman has before she gives birth to a child, and those contractions start off slow and far apart, and then as the child comes closer and closer to birth, those contractions become stronger and stronger and closer and closer together. So Jesus is saying, as you see these things increasing, and as you see the intensity of these things increasing, you can know that the time is getting closer. It's going to be just like that. Don't be alarmed by it. It must happen. Kingdom must rise against kingdom, and nation must rise against nation. Think of it this way. The United States, before she was the United States, was just a group of colonies that had to go to war with the king of England. So that we would then gather our independence and become a great nation. And as a great nation, God has used us to fuel the spread of Christianity throughout the world. Okay? So that had to happen. Other things will have to happen as well. And as much as I hate to admit it, it does not appear that the United States is in end times prophecy. Don't let that scare you. It's something that must happen. If it is indeed true that we are gone by the time... The end times find their fulfillment. It is something that must happen. Um, Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Okay? They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. Those of us who are, uh, who are children of God and who go by the name Christ, we are going to be delivered up to tribulation. Tribulation is just a word that means trouble, difficulty, hard times. We are going to be delivered up to hard times, to trouble and, and difficult times. And when that happens, guess what's going to happen? The church will be purified and jesus tells us right here it's not a pretty picture but the church will be purified then they will be they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake by the way that tells you that when this time comes christians will be hated by all organized entities of the world that's what it says okay and then many will fall away And betray one another and hate one another. When that tribulation comes, there will be people that you thought were Christians who really weren't. They were in the church game because they got something out of the church game, whether it was money or status or something else. And when God sets the fire, the purifying fire, they are going to get out of the fire. But the true Christians are going to stay, and they're going to accept the tribulation, They're going to accept the difficulty to the point of death. And that will be proof that you really loved God more than you loved the easy, organized systems of the world. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's not that there won't be any law. That's not what it will mean at all. There will be laws everywhere. The difference is that everyone will only choose the laws that benefit them. Does that make sense? And when that happens, the love of many will grow cold. People will be hard, they'll find it hard to love other people because they never know how the next person is going to react under the law that they're choosing to benefit from on that day. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, oh, but the one who endures to the end will be saved And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God is going to give everyone a chance. Everyone and every organization, national organization in the world, will have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And once that has occurred, and we're very close to that now, then the end will come. Then beginning in verse 15, we have something called the abomination of That your flight not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Right? That's the purpose of prophecy. I'm telling you ahead of time so that you know. Okay? See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. God is saying here, Jesus is saying here, that when I come back at the end of the age, it is going to be so evident that everyone is going to see it. When the lightning flashes 40 miles from here, everybody in High Springs can see it. Okay, When there's a dead animal over in Alachua, and you're living in Fort White, and the buzzards are circling, you can see it, right? You can see it from miles away. Everybody will be able to see it. Nobody has to come to you and tell you that Christ has come again. It'll be evident. So he say, don't believe that stuff, because those people, what they're trying to do is they're trying to lead you away from the true Christ and to hook on to the Antichrist. That's what they're trying to do. It will be a time of great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. For if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's going to be such a big, big amount of tribulation and difficulty when that Antichrist takes his place. And it's too too in-depth for me to go in from just this scripture, but I can tell you that what they're talking about with the abomination of desolation, what they're talking about is the Antichrist, either him and some object that he puts up in the temple. It's hearkening back to a time when a really bad dude named Antiochus Epiphanes actually went into the temple in ancient before Christ times. And he went into that temple and he put up statues of Zeus. And he, um, and he actually uh, uh, sacrificed pigs on the altar. And that, for the, for the Jewish people, that desecrated that temple. It made it unholy and unclean. And so this is a reference to that. The Antichrist is going to come in to the temple, and he is going to set himself up as God, or he's going to set some object up in the temple that's going to be desecrative in nature. This tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that the Jews are going to rebuild the temple. Okay, There are already plans by the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. As soon as they can get a piece of land to rebuild it on, it's going to get rebuilt. They would do it today if they could. In fact, they would love to do it on the Temple Mount, but that'd start, you know, like World War Three, Four, and Five if they did. So, but that day is coming when they're going to rebuild the temple. And when they do, this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel will enter into that temple. If you want to know where that is, you can find it in Daniel 9.27, and you can find it in Daniel 11.31. That that's what what, um, Jesus is referencing there. He's not referencing Antiochus Epiphanes. He's referencing referencing Daniel, who is also referencing Antiochus Epiphanes. So, too complicated for me to get here in the time that I have. So, Paul talks about this same thing, by the way. You won't find it on the slides, Wendy. Wendy. Paul talks about the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4. I'll just read that to you. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together, gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's going to, have, there's going to be an event. Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, Daniel tells us, that there is an event coming in which an Antichrist figure is going to set himself up in the temple as God. And that's going to be a terrible day. All right, you'll notice here also that in 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to read it again. Paul tells us something. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. There's a gathering, God says. There's a gathering of his people back to him. Just like the hen bringing the Israeli people and the Hebrew people back under the wings, there's going to be this return to the Holy Land or a return to Christ. Now let's get back to Matthew, verse 29. Is everybody following me? I'm not going too fast, am I? You good? Everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, you're picking up what I'm laying down? Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the... I want to talk about the powers of heaven so bad. I want to, but it's... It's a rabbit trail. So, I am going to do a sermon in the near future, Damon, on Psalm 82. But I won't do it this morning. Okay, I'll do this. All right. There, There are powers in heaven, and when I say heaven, I mean in the spiritual realm, that do have influence on earth and that God sort of runs the universe with a host of spiritual beings and he chastises them pretty hard in Psalm 82. But here we're going to find out that when the Son of Man comes back, When all of this comes back, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Well, you can't shake God's power because he's the ultimate power. But the powers beneath God, they're going to be shaken. Okay, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we think of, as Christians, we think of God coming back and that being a victorious and glorified happy event and for us it will be but for those of us that do not belong to the divine family of God it will not be okay God came first as a sacrificial lamb the next time that he comes he's coming on a war horse and there's going to be the ultimate terrible story of destruction and those people who are evil and those people who have not submitted their will to the will of God, who have refused goodness and chosen evil over goodness, they are going to fall at the armies of God. And it will not be a pleasant day for them. Verse 32, very important one here. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, Jesus says. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is an example, by the way, of a double prophecy. Okay, see, on the one hand, Jesus is telling the disciples this. Remember, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at the temple across the valley that he just left and said, I'm leaving that place desolate says, that, that building's not going to, it's not going to stand, okay? This generation will not pass away until that stuff breaks down, okay? Forty years later, it all breaks down, okay? So that's, there's a prophecy on that end, but then there's a prophecy on the other end. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes ten, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. That's a sign for you when the fig tree begins to bloom, summer is coming, okay? So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things that we just talked about. Not just the destruction of the temple, but all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the fig tree is a symbolic reference in biblical literature to, um, to the Jews to the Israeli people, to the Israel nation, to the Israeli nation. That's what it is. Multiple times throughout the scripture, you can find Israel being compared to a fig tree. And I'll give you some examples. You can write this down. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 23. God's telling Ezekiel, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall no longer Uh, be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore in their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I, I will save them from all the backslidings which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Okay, the main thing about that Ezekiel 37, 21 through 23 passage is this, that God is going to gather his people back from all the nations of all the world. That's a prophecy that God is making through Ezekiel. Now, let's go back to the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. Okay? In 1948, Israel became a nation again for the first time since the diaspora. So the diaspora, the main diaspora, occurs during the times of Nebuchadnezzar at the Babylonian Exile. And they were never brought back from all of the nations of the world to become their own singular nation again for a couple of thousand years, okay? 2,500 years, something like that. 1948, they're a nation again. 1967, that nationhood is completely set, okay? So they're a brand, not a brand new, but they're in, in the modern times, a brand new nation, okay? The fig tree is putting out its leaves, And Jesus says that everyone in that generation, when that happens, will see all of these prophecies that I've just told you about. Jeremiah 24, 1 through 6. Write that down because it's not on the slides. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs are very good and the bad figs are very bad, so bad that they can't be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, and I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land, I will build them up and not tear them down, I will plant them and not pluck them up. Israel being compared to what? fig trees, right? Hosea 9, 10. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There are lots of references to Israel as a fig tree. These are just some that struck me when I was putting the sermon together. They're not even the most important. They just are the ones that pop out to me. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So Hosea is comparing them to a fig tree, but they've ruined the fig tree because they're worshiping things that God would not want them to worship. So Israel is a fig tree, and Jesus tells us that when we see that fig tree blooming, that we can rest assured that that generation will not pass away until the prophecies are fulfilled. So, if that interpretation of Matthew 32 is correct, we're close, very close, and you can look at the world as it is now and see the birth pains happening faster and faster and faster and faster and more and more intense. However, Jesus gives us a bit of wisdom in verse 36, where he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. All right. We read that with our modern eyes and we go, oh, okay, well, what the world is going to be like in that day is going to be like in the days of Noah. And people were marrying and giving in marriage. They were continuing in their jobs. They were distracted by the worldly things that they were involved in. That's the way we, or at least that's the way I have historically read that particular passage. But that ain't what Jesus is saying. I'm going to tell you what the days of Noah were like. And you tell me if we're not approaching that now. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose then the lord said my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal his days will be a hundred and twenty years the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god went to the daughters of men and had children by them and they were heroes of old men of renown the lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth and His heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The days before Noah were days in which people thought about evil continually all the time and everything was perverted and everything that should have been of God was not of God. And because it was not of God, when God decided to flood the world, the people were so were so enmeshed, not only in their daily lives, but in the evil of their hearts, that they could not see the goodness in the man of Noah and were completely unprepared for the prophecy that he was giving them on a daily basis. My goodness, this was a wise man that was good, and he's building a giant boat in his front yard, okay? If a guy's building a giant boat the size of the ark on my street, I'm going to wonder what's going on there because that's a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of money to make that happen. People don't do that for no reason, right? So it's not like they weren't given lots of warning. So that's what the days of Noah was like. We're in that now. We're in that now. And I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, and I have nothing but compassion, but we have been under a delusion now for more than a couple of years. I Don't misunderstand me. I think, for instance, that coronavirus is a real thing that kills people. On the other hand, our reaction to it was delusional and not only are we delusional in that sense but we are now so delusional that my goodness we're willing to call men women and women men and we're we're you you have to believe that or there's something wrong with you that's a problem y'all that's delusion okay that's how evil we have become we think we're doing good but we're doing evil And that's just two things. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had... Known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus doesn't tell us that we can't know the general time period. He tells us we can't know the day or the hour. And so you must be ready because it can be any day and any hour. Who then is faithful and wise? Who, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Harsh. But you are supposed to be the good and wise and faithful servant. That's what you are. That's, that is your calling if you were if you are claiming the name christian that's your calling to be wise and good and faithful servant and to spread the goodness of god throughout the world where you live now again i told you that the end of the age is not something that is terrible and bad it's actually something that is good it just will be difficult i'm going to end this very quickly with revelation 21 and this is to tell you what comes after the end has finished. Revelation 21, 3-7. through 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be, with, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. They've destroyed the steps and pulled up the uh, the poison ivy. They've built something new and better and good. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things All things are new. Your body is new. Your mind is new. Your spirit is new. The organizations that you belong to with other human beings is new. All of it is new. I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 22, 1-7. through 7, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves and ever. So what happens is the abomination of desolation enters into the temple and the spirit of the God is taken out of the world and the world is left desolate, it's destroyed and then God returns, everything makes it new and removes the desolation and fills it with a river of life in which you get to do the very thing that you were created and designed to do which is to have communion with God and communion with God's family on a daily basis. And that should excite you. So the whole purpose of prophecy is not to scare you. Although I do think that you should have a spirit of concern. And that you should have a spirit of trying to get the message out to the world that God is a gracious and good and caring and forgiving God. And that you still have time to be forgiven and to change the life that you have into something that is better there's something better than what we have here on earth right now a million gazillion trillion times better so I'm ending that with that that's my sermon on the prophecies and so um, I'm not going to do an altar call or anything this morning but I will turn it over to Damon so that you can instruct people on whatever to do next and so thank you